Welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's September 6, 2017, and we are at the fabulous episode 8. Or are we at episode 7, Chad? I'm losing count. Oh, it's definitely episode 8. It's definitely episode 8. Well, there you go. We are really excited about this show because, again, we're pivoting from the world of the NFL to an equally interesting place. Chad, who are we going to deconstruct? Who is the great creative entrepreneur that we're going to decode and learn from today? One of my favorite creative minds in the entertainment industry behind such films as Inside Out, Ratatouille, Toy Story, and Up. It is, in fact, Ed Catmull, uh, one of the co-founders of Pixar. And uh, we have someone special here on the podcast with us today, too. Right, Mike? Very exciting. We have our, our second guest joining us uh, on the Moonshots podcast. Joining us from not far up the road from me is Mr. Simon Banks, who is a creative and innovation guru. He is such a wonderful and creative mind. Uh, he can do everything from illustrate to run really amazing workshops where he sort of unleashes the creativity of, of people. And he's actually uh, just about to launch a brand new book, which is a fantastic read. It's called A Thousand Little Light Bulbs: How to Kickstart a Culture of Innovation in Your Organization. Hello, Simon Banks. Hello, Mike. Hello. Thanks for having me along. Hello, Chad. So glad you could join us, Simon. And and I think it's um, it's really the the setting the scene for. The story of creativity by digging into Ed Catmull, who not only was a co-founder of Pixar, but he was also now taken over the reins of Disney, who acquired Pixar a few years ago. And he oversees one of the most, not only, I think, most successful film studios in history. If you compare their average success, I mean, literally every film with maybe one exception out of the 18 or 19 or so that they've released most of them are multi-million dollar critically acclaimed successes and if you think about we all love you know the toy stories and the finding nemos and bugs life but if you think if you go outside of this film and you think where else in the world do you see a company that every single product they release is a smash hit uh, Chad, I can't actually think of any other kind. Even Apple and even Amazon have their misses. I don't think anyone has got a batting rate as good as Pixar. I don't know any company that has had every single one of their launches gross over $100 million with, I think, five of them, like close to half a billion. Right. And and often, often they are just replacing uh, their own achievements with new achievements so, you know, Bugs Life beats The Incredibles to be the highest grossing animation film. But their journey of success is so great that not only are they just the kings of animated film, but you can safely say that they're just the getting to the point where they're just the kings of film. So to give you a sense of their success, if you adjust it for, for price inflation, you're looking at five of their films have grossed at just ticket price alone, over 400 million US dollars. And 
from that, there is a huge, huge source of creativity. And what is so special about today's show is we're actually going to dig into the book that Ed Catmull wrote. It's called Creativity Inc., Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. So we not only have by far the most successful movie studio in the world and its founder revealing his secrets, but we might have one of the greatest stories in innovation in history. Because remember, yes, Apple had the iPhone, the iPod, the iPad, but Pixar have had over 15 smash hits. Almost every single movie is its own iPhone launch. That's how successful they are. And Simon, I know you live in the world of creativity and you, you, you started as an illustrator. So it must be wonderfully exciting to dig into this story of Pixar, Ed Catmull, and all the learnings that he shares in Creativity Inc. Yeah, absolutely. And just to see that transition that he had from, I guess, wanting to be an artist and then went into the world of um, you know, computer science and physics and then how those two gelled as well. So that, I guess, that whole brain thinking and that whole brain approach and different parts of his lifestyle that all formed to make, you know, uh, Pixar and his storytelling what it is today. So, uh, yeah, just seeing the, the mix that he has has just been fascinating. And And Chad, I want to hit it straight back at you. You're a storyteller in the medium of film. What does it feel like when you read Creativity Inc.? Is it like the playbook to your company's success and the next film? I mean, it must be very special to read. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I've always wanted to work for George Lucas since I was a, a very small kid. The closest I've gotten is uh, befriending Dennis Muren, a longtime collaborator and you know multi- Oscar winner for, for special effects at Industrial Light and Magic that was a very close collaborator on, with George on, on all the Star Wars films and Indiana Jones and, and, and many more. But, um, Ed's, I think, unique amongst the people we've profiled thus far because he wrote Creativity Inc. very much from a management perspective and, you know, wanting to impart that kind of wisdom, uh, on, on the readers. And then he also peppers in the story of, what Simon was saying, you know, he was a physicist and then he got into computer science and then he got poached by George Lucas. So there's also just the story of Pixar in, you know, the founding with Steve Jobs and how Ed had a different relationship with Steve Jobs that makes it a much more interesting, just simply a management or how to manage creativity kind of book. And I think the, the most interesting example is when Disney bought Pixar and the two companies had to integrate. And Ed had a really interesting uh, approach to that. And so I actually just want to play our first clip where Ed's explaining kind of what happened uh, when Pixar and Disney had to merge. Nine years ago, uh, Disney bought Pixar and they put Disney Animation under us. Mm -hmm. And Disney Animation uh, in the 90s had four hugely successful films. So there was uh, Little, Little Mermaid, Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. Aladdin, and Lion King. Then it was downhill for 17 years. Mm -hmm. So when we came in, they were demoralized, they were dispirited, and they were failing as a company. So this is this great opportunity. Can we take these ideas and apply them to a group that was fundamentally broken mm -hmm. and see if the ideas work? And so we decided to keep them entirely separate. They're not allowed to do any production work for each other at all. Mm -hmm. 
And so we explained the principles in about four hours. Mm-hmm. They all nodded their heads in agreement. This all makes perfect sense. It took four years for them to deeply get it. And now, of course, they've, you know, every, every film has been a success since then. While the ideas sounded good, it took four years for them to get to actually understand it. There is a vast difference between thinking you understand something and actually understanding it. It is always easy to state your values. The hard part is asking yourselves why you don't live up to them. The second observation was that when we arrived, the studio was considered to be a failure and not producing creative films. However, once the studio turned around and they were successful and creative, that's where they are now, the important point is they are largely the same people as who were there when they were failing. And I believe this is the most important point I've got to make. The talent was there, we just had to allow it to flower. And if you understand this, you will do better. It is our choices that block or enable that potential. Remove the blocks to candor. Make it okay to make mistakes. And now look out at the world. What is our reaction to threats? So what do you think? He's uh, got lots of wisdom. So the amazing thing about what he did was he took fundamentally a team that had failed for years and years, and he didn't rip it apart. He was patient, and he went into this mentor mode, and he really respected the individuals. I mean, I'm just trying to think of how many times we hear about the complete uh, ripping apart of a team when it's failing, firing all the execs, bringing in all the new ones, new leaders, new branding, all of that. He focused on doing a number of things to unlock the potential in those people. And largely those people are still there today and are having great success. I think this establishes the the credibility not only of Ed and Pixar and, and his book and his thinking, but I think it really speaks to this philosophy of everyone's got the potential. It's the manager's job to get all of the the blockers, all of the barriers out of the way so that they they can thrive. And I thought that was a, a really powerful way to kind of set up the impact that, that he's, uh, he's had in the world. When, when you heard this, Simon, and you hear about how he approached the Disney thing, what, what struck you about his approach and how he allowed people to, to really flower? Look, I guess what um, struck me, I guess similar to what you said as well, is that it, it, those same people went from having, a, you know, uh, I guess 17 years of failure as a, or 17 years of uh, not producing the quality they want through to, you know, producing the, their brilliant movie. So I guess uh, allowing yourself the, the freedom and the space to rediscover that creative um, ability and that creative uh, pulse, that imagination that we all have and I guess providing the, the right sort of environment where you know people felt that they could let their ideas flourish once again because you know my thoughts are that you know everyone is creative but you know most of us you know it's, it's uh, we've forgotten it or it's fallen by the wayside or you know other things have taken over but it, I guess he just came in and you know let that flourish 
And, um, you know, those people found their, their heartbeat again. And do you see this regularly when you're working with teams? Do you often feel that they're, they're highly constrained and that they, they, in fact, do find it hard to kind of unleash their creativity? Oh, look, I, I would say almost every uh, team, especially in large uh, the large corporates I work with have a huge amount of um, constraint and you know there's a there's a great you know John Cleese of Monty Python fame says that uh, you know creativity needs to be uh, liberated doesn't need to be taught so it's just letting people understand that you know it is okay to uh, you know to to make mistakes and uh, play and experiment and you know that you are all sitting on a a, a great pot of creative potential and giving people the confidence and belief in themselves to you know to do that again so yeah absolutely i see it all the time what tool or technique do you use when you come to to teams that are all kind of locked in and not able to unleash their creativity what what are some of the things that you practical things that you do with them to help them get ideas flowing get creativity moving Look, I just try and, I guess, upfront, try and make it fun again because, you know, creativity and innovation are the, we've been doing it since our day dot. Um, so it's nothing new. Uh, and it's actually really good. It's really fun to create and uh, make things and explore. And so the first thing is create an environment where people are having a good time uh, and they feel safe. So I think that's the number one thing and make it enjoyable. So a place where they want to be. And I guess uh, this isn't so much a tool, but I always make everyone acknowledge their uh, creative ogre, which is this uh, bigger, I call the big monster we have inside of us that tells us uh, how uncreative we are or um, how terrible or our ideas might sound and often goes right back to maybe a pretty average comment you might have had from a teacher at school about your uh, art and so you therefore relate uh, your ability to draw with your ability to be creative but you know as Ed Catmull you know explores those things aren't the same art and create or drawing creativity aren't the same so I guess they're the two things I always uh, make sure we do to kick off so create a, a really fun environment which is enjoyable then get people to do their ogre and and then you can start to go into, uh, I guess, ways to you know shift your thinking. And and how do people respond when you unlock that? What happens? Tell tell us about. Take us to that moment when someone's finally getting it uh, that creativity flowing. What does that look like and feel like? Look, it feels like you can you can shift. You can feel the energy in the room, so or the vibe or whatever it might be. You feel that sort of shift. Um, so people start to smile and realize actually that you know this is going to be okay. Uh, I will be looked after, and you know I won't, my ideas won't be um, torn to shreds. And you, what you hear is lots of great conversation, and I guess you see lots of uh, movement as well. Because I think you know the the way we move and manage our energy has a big impact on uh, the quality of ideas. So you you hear a lot of you hear a lot of noise, and it feels good, and you see a lot of movement as well. Awesome. So, Chad, we're going to go into this next clip now, which is all about removing blocks. And I guess you must see a lot of people that that when they're trying to be creative, just facing all sorts of, as Simon would say, the ogre. What do you see in your work when you're making film and watching entrepreneurs innovate? What do you often see when people are facing barriers? Where are those moments that seem to cause the greatest resistance? Well, I think it's the capital R resistance that lives in the back of all of our <laughs> brains, uh, or the ogre, as Simon called it. Um, 
honestly, I, I do feel that that moving past that and just being in an environment where you are comfortable and and taking that risk and failing and being a, a bit vulnerable, that's when I feel like I'm I'm doing the best work. But it's really hard to get into that space sometimes, which is why I was so drawn to learn from from Ed. But uh, here, I'm going to play this this clip that you would uh, chosen out of I don't know, like the two dozen that we we had this time around. Too many, too many. Yeah, but. Uh, I want to be sure that we get to all of them. So, uh, so here's Ed uh, talking about removing these barriers to, to our creativity. Just uh, within the last few weeks, Frozen uh, passed Toy Story 3 <laughs> to become the highest grossing animated film uh, in history for worldwide gross. So now actually for all films, live action and animated, it's the sixth highest grossing film in history. So here's the key takeaway. It's largely the same people who were there when they were failing. And my view is, and, is, and, I, and I believe this very strongly, is that most people are creative. Most people want to do well. And the issue is not how do you make them be more creative? It's how do we remove the barriers and the blocks? That the barriers and the blocks are systemic. They're hidden. They're hard to get at. But if we get rid of those blocks, we enable those people to become their better selves. So this clip is really the, the perfect setup to the next two, two ideas that we have for the listeners. And I think the, the, the setup that we've got here is that you have to remember that Pixar is dealing with creative ideas. They do not start from an engineering point of view or um, creating something that has a patent. They deal with story, and story is very ambiguous. It's hard to capture, and a good story in execution can sound bad as an idea. And so this is the great challenge that they face, and this is why this theme of safety is coming up and removing those blocks. So, guys, I, what I want to do is I want to jump straight into this next clip because now here are two things that Pixar does that we can all learn from. Now, the first one we're going to hear about is this and i want to steal this one yeah yeah okay i'll let you i'll let you do it go on no i just mean i want to steal the technique i thought it was so great oh absolutely there's this idea and it started with the founding team at pixar of the brain trust so i'm not gonna get all of them but it was steve and at steve jobs and ed catmull and john Lasseter, and i'm leaving at least two others out but they essentially created a space where they could be open and honest and vulnerable and really hash out the ideas on what it takes uh, to create a, a great story. But here, I'll just let Ed speak about creating and working with the, the, these brain trusts inside of Pixar and eventually Disney Animation as well. well. Now, when you talk about the brain trust, it's not a group of people that exists all the time. Mm -hmm. It's what we call the group that come together to solve a problem usually for meetings after we viewed what a film is or a two-day offsite. And it operates under four principles. Uh, one of them is that um, the, uh, nobody can override the director. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, basically we uh, remove the power structure from the room. So John's notes, uh, or minus, we can't override the director. Mm -hmm. Now, 
It's easier said than done because people will sometimes defer to what they perceive the power structure to be. But it's a conscious effort to, to not have that. The second is it's peer-to-peer. So that it's filmmaker talking to filmmaker. It's not uh, uh, boss talking to filmmaker, boss talking to employee. Mm-hmm. Um, the third but one- you can't override the director. Well, it's because the director is, it's, it's their project, it's his or her project. Uh-huh. All right, they're the ones are responsible. The reason we have to remove the power structure is if they know the group can override them, mm-hmm then they will enter the room in a defensive posture. Hmm. And that will make it so they don't listen. By allowing them to say, no, the choice is really yours, they then can come in, because they're highly exposed, mm-hmm. and then they can listen. And they will treat the comments as comments to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, third principle is that um, they all share in each other's success. They have a vested interest in each other's uh-huh. success. And the last one is just that they give and take honest notes. Okay, so for me, what is so powerful about this is that it's not just for Hollywood-style animation. This concept of a brain's trust can be applied to a board and its CEO. It can be done within a management team. It could be done within a startup and the founders. It can be done up in any sort of organization. I think the, the, the important thing we have to understand that he did here, it became about listening. It became about the lack of hierarchy. There's no threat. And he systematically, he designed the organization so that all the things that impede people from hearing, from listening, and making the work better, all those barriers, he got rid of them by saying, There's no judgment. We're all here for you, and we can't override you. So you've you've let the guard down, and this is where all of the Pixar amazing twists and refinements come from because the director comes ready to listen. They're not just trying to please a manager. So this concept of a brain's trust can be applied in a multitude of ways to any sort of team, and I think that the notion of creating that alignment so people are not under threat and can start to listen and to be creative together, I think is a very exciting idea. And I I think, Simon, you must see a ton of this when you get groups together and you've created those right conditions, something you talked about earlier, great things happen. So tell us a little bit about what you see when this happens and and what kind of thoughts come to your mind when thinking about trying to design for this success. Yeah, look, I think it's um, what they've done really well is they've understood that the the human spirit is, you know, quite fragile and such fear of uh, your idea being uh, shot down or uh, torn apart that makes makes you in that defensive mode and I also like what they they focus on the I guess on the problem not the person the problem being how do we you know create a great uh, story so I guess part of it's just having that um you know that that openness to uh, discuss ideas and I guess you know build on each other's ideas so you know that some of the uh, whole is much greater than the you know the parts by itself so when you get that you know that peer-to-peer 
uh, discussion. It's sort of like when you're sitting with a good group of friends and you're you're discussing something. You know that um, you know everyone's wanting to all move in the right direction, create that great you know film or create that great story that you get that you know that wonderful collaboration that's when i guess ideas become not just one but they become many and they they start to roll into each other and build and grow yeah i i think um, my experience with it is whenever i share my work with others it always gets better and when i've been under enormous pressure to come up with work and ideas and and products and so forth Often I'm most off track when I've just been bunkered down. And when in on the inverse of that, when I'm sharing and people are giving great feedback, I look at the final product and I can honestly say, well, geez, if I hadn't have had those suggestions and ideas, it would never have, never have got to, to where it's got. I'm, I'm interested, Chad, when, when you're trying to create a great story, produce and direct a film, do you guys have tools like brain trusts or collective ideas of people coming together to to work on an idea? And tell us about how this kind of reflects in your own practice. Well, I try and fight as much as I can against the idea of the grand reveal because that never works. Like you said, Mike, toiling away in the bunker and then going, ta-da, yeah. it, uh, it always falls flat. And... So for me, it's just, you know, ship things early and be adamant about asking for feedback. Um, and I do this actually in many more areas of my life than just work is like, you, sometimes you kind of have to pester people for feedback. And this is why I love the idea of this brain trust, which is a group of people that is solely designed to be open and vulnerable and give honest notes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's, it's hard for us to move past kind of the surface level of things sometimes. But I also want to mention, you know, Ed is very adamant about saying that it doesn't always work. And sometimes it's not the right context. And sometimes it's not the right people. So I think what I'm going to do is kind of go out into my network and see who I maybe want to recruit for, you know, my brain trust on on my work. And, uh, Right. And like really try and cultivate this practice. I'm, I think this is my single uh, favorite idea that I took away both from these uh, talks that, that we listened to and the book, Creativity Inc. Yeah, I, I tell you what is interesting. Um, did you guys, were you guys a little surprised that even when they've got these huge directors, when they get in the room with the big chiefs of Pixar, they still feel fragile and vulnerable and they defer to the power structure in the room because it's sort of the antithesis of what you expect the Hollywood director to be. Did that surprise you guys at all? I think it actually explains their genius. Like, I, I think that's the only way that they could come up with movies that have been so successful. I mean, I think, I don't think they could have done it any other way. And I think that's why so many people kind of clamor to make a film like with Pixar, or with Disney animation, because they know that they're going to get an idea that is refined right. hundreds, if not thousands of times, which yes. like I've been on the inside of movies that have never seen the light of day because of a megalomaniacal, you know, director that is just like running off the rails <laughs> um, because there is no checks and balances. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 
I'm very fascinated at this kind of inside creative process and how they, they work. And I think you actually have a, this next clip, Mike, that, that kind yeah. of tees that up. Oh, yeah. So, so if you imagine that the Brains Trust creates this environment and the right dynamics for feedback, this next clip is going to be um, Ed talking about um, the key practice that they need to do inside of the, the immersion of um, a creative idea, a film or a story. And he sets up the grayness of it. And this is the, this is the, at the heart of the complexity and the struggle of creativity. So let's listen to Ed talking about dumb ideas. All right. So zero dumb ideas is a bad concept. In fact, sometimes dumb ideas actually stimulate good ideas. Okay. How about 40 dumb ideas? Are 40 dumb ideas okay? Probably not. It means somebody's throwing out a bunch of stuff and taking up airtime, and they don't actually get it. So if zero is bad, and 40 dumb ideas is bad, where should we be? I don't know, somewhere in the middle. And that's the challenge, is to be able to operate in this space where we cannot clearly define where we should be. And we have to make it safe to operate in this messy uh, environment. Um, the fear of looking bad or of making mistakes or of not delivering lead people to conclude that environment is not safe. So, so this resonated with me a great deal. It took me back. Back to my days on Madison Avenue, working with these really large corporate clients doing big consumer marketing campaigns. And we'd get briefed on these huge, like, we want to launch this in 35 markets and you've got hardly any time. And, and the pressure of meeting these big deadlines and these economic realities of you've got to launch, you've got to launch big, you've got to sell a ton of them. And then you've got the creative process trying to live side by side. And, and just the, the challenge it was for clients to empathize with the creative process because they're under so much pressure for a big commercial launch. I, I just saw myself in this process, stuck in this world as some sort of, you know, balancer between these two worlds. Um, it, it's such a, it's such a murky and, you, you just don't, there is no right or wrong. There's sort of an organic creative path that you have to follow. And, and, and this, this just spoke to the great, great challenge of trying to make commercial success live with, with creativity. So this is what you do every day, Simon. And, and as a, as a illustrator, a facilitator, as an author, you're forever exploring ideas and working with others you know, to make it safe for them to explore the right number of ideas. How do you do it? Like, what practices do you have to navigate through? When have we got something and when, when are we still not there? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Like it's, it's, you know, before I was an illustrator, I was, a, you know, an abstract artist. And so I, you know, a painter and I did quite well, you know, in this field and, you know, exhibited, you know, in, in Sydney and the UK. So this, it's this interplay of, uh, when do you know something's done and when it's finished and the process isn't always, uh, linear that I guess I really resonated with me with that sort of that messy space that Ed spoke about. And so I, I bring, try to bring that to the, you know, the people I work with that I guess in the corporate space, as you, um, uh, spoke of when you were, had these deadlines, there's often this mindset that, look, we've got a day and we need to get, uh, we need to solve it in a day, but often it doesn't work like that. And also we might, uh, we might try some different things to, you know, explore our thinking. And I guess putting across that point that, look, this might not be the answer you're looking for, but it starts to become part of that answer. And, you know, so just giving people the opportunity to explore a number of different ways, but look, be okay with the fact that if you don't get the answer straight away, because obviously you want to solve this in an, in an hour because it makes us productive and we get things done quickly, that's our style. You have to be okay with, with, that, uh, with that ambiguity and, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable as well, not having that answer straight away, but also try a bunch of different things. If something doesn't work, you know, try something else because as uh, Ed talks about, none of this is linear. And every time you, uh, every time you uh, explore new ideas, the, the process that you follow or uh, the way your team might operate, it's, it's always different. So be prepared that you can't, you know, squeeze people uh, into a process and make them, you know, all perform like well-trained seals. Everyone's different <laughs> and that, you know, that style and approach would be different every time as well. I love the, the linear thing. How do you, Chad, know when, when you're trying to take creativity and to put it into a linear format, how do you know when you've got the idea? For me, it's just looking at people's reactions. When I see nodding heads and people leaning in, I think for me, that's when I know that I'm on to something. Because I'm in, in the attention capturing business in the same way that the Pixar is. And if you're not eliciting that emotional response, I'm seeing the, the emotional response as leaning in or um, the eyes. Yeah. Also, also the eyes. You, just, you can tell when someone's listening um, or really invested. That's, and it's an easy shift from the third or the fourth or the 13th idea on the 14th, you see the shift and then you know that, that it's actually connected with someone and then you can run with it. I think it's, it's, it's hard to push through to get to that point though, because you think, oh, like in the same way that like people don't understand or internalize like statistics and it's, it's like a numbers game. And I think that's what Ed's really getting to at here. He's, it's a numbers game within reason. So he, you know, he's like, it's not 40 movie ideas. And it's not zero, it's somewhere in between. And how, and how do we, you know, find the best way through it? In the book, he, he talks about how he takes an amazing director like Brad Bird, who directed The Incredibles, one of my favorite movies, let alone like Pixar movies. This famous director, Brad Bird, comes in, who's directed a number of great films. He still has to come to Pixar and pitch three films. Pixar doesn't develop ideas in the same way that other studios do. They don't go out and shop for ideas and buy up the latest, hottest scripts from writers. They pick a director first and then have them p 
pitch three films. And again, this is Ed's and Pixar's philosophy of, you know, you can't just be tied to one thing. And the director will develop all three ideas and then pitch it to uh, the Pixar creative team, all three ideas. And eventually they land on one, but it took the creation and the investment of time and energy into those three ideas to actually come out with one that it was worth the investment of, you know, hundreds of people's of time and effort for sometimes like five or even seven years. I think Frozen took, I think, seven years from initial pitch concept to hit the screen, which is an enormous amount of time uh, in the entertainment industry. And they're always very willing to change right at the end. And that was another theme that came up a lot when we were investigating Ed. He talks about, you know, making those big calls as really the essence of creativity and making an idea go from good to great. Simon, did you have some other thoughts on 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 ideas and, and the journey it takes to get them home? Yeah, I, I liked what Chad was saying before, like when you when do you uh, know that the idea is uh, sticking? It's almost you start to see people get out of their chair a little bit. If you are, if you are sitting, you, you see that energy. Then you see that people start to, to build on that idea as well. So I guess that's a, when you're in that, I guess, a room environment, that's when you can start to say, hang on, we're on to something here. And people's you know, eyes start to light up as well. And again, there's no right or wrong way to, to measure that. But you just, you know, you have to work with what you can see and feel. But what I, I liked with, um, I liked when uh, hearing with Ed and Pixar, they're, they're not afraid to blow things up as well. If they if they feel it needs uh, a massive shift, they'll they'll take that. So no matter how far along they are in the process, if it if it doesn't feel right, they're not scared to blow it up and uh, start again because part of what they've done already will also feed into the success of you know once they have blown it up as well. So I guess it's that massive action that. You know, I guess really struck me rather than being you know, so far along. Oh, we, we we're too far into this to, to to do it to change it now. That they're happy to they're happy to disrupt. So it's funny you mentioned that. I had a situation this week where I was on a call yesterday, and we're about to start a, a large new project for a very large organization, and there was myself and two others on a call. And it's all been about all the work to get the project started. And we're, we're literally a week or two from, from kickoff. And one of my colleagues says, look, I'm really concerned about whether the constraints on this project mean that we will never build a great product. And it took me by a real surprise because everything has been about getting the project started. And, and everyone's familiar with what it takes getting people aligned getting paperwork done, signatures, uh, you know, sourcing great talent to work on it. And we're literally a week away and this question came up. And I found myself, uh, because I was working on the Ed Catmull show, uh, for us, I found myself thinking, well, this takes me by real surprise. I'm so excited about the project. I didn't see this issue at all. But then I found myself becoming open because I realized and what I've tried to learn from Ed is that this is when your values really show. If, if, if my colleague is right and we're working, walking into a situation where we can't make a group product ever, the constraints are such that it's just impossible, then why would we try and make the product? Why would you put all that time and effort into something that's never going to succeed in the way we'd want it? And I found myself 
just not being like, ah, oh, let's just do it. It's going to be great. I'll, I'll do some magic or whatever. But no, I was like, okay, let's talk about this. So we're now going through an evaluation process, which will no doubt um, <laughs> cause all sorts of strife because everyone everyone's like getting ready to, to, to climb the mountain. And we're like, hang on, do we really want to climb this? So this is the power of asking, is the idea right? Is the project, is the, the product right? And um, one of the other things I wanted to share with you both is that the funny thing that Chad was saying, you know, looking at how people respond and Simon was like, people getting out of the chair, this totally corresponds with making great product as well. Because when you're making a great product and particularly when you're prototyping, you have low fidelity materials. You might have paper, pens, cardboard. You may even have some sort of rough digital mock-ups. But the thing is, People are human beings first and they respond emotionally, whether it be good or bad. And you can actually see that in their body language, all those little gestures. And it's a big nod to the idea of don't ask your customer what they want. Discover what they really need, what motivates them, and look to the signals um, that tell you that they really appreciate something. And, and I've seen that a lot in product prototyping uh, sprints and you know when you've got something chad you you've been in a number of these with me like you know when you've hit it and and equally you know when you're building a product and it's just not working oh yeah it's i think the biggest sign is like especially with the digital prototyping that's on a phone or a screen or something someone will bring it closer to them or up to their face if they're really engaged with it and if they're not, they just want to hand it back over to you and they just, you know, they're kind of like done with it. So they almost like possess it in a way and like they don't want to give it back, right? That's right. showing you that they really need what you've provided yes, to them. Yes. My other big tell is when an executive goes into pitch mode and rather than listening and working with the customer on a, on a prototype, they're like, hey, this is going to be great. Here are all the features and benefits. You really want this, don't you? And you know... And, and, and the interesting thing is it tends to be the more senior people who are used to pitching all the time, pitching their ideas in PowerPoint. When they get in front of a customer, they've forgotten how to listen. And you, Simon, you must see a lot of this kind of behavior is trying to force an idea onto a customer. Yeah, and especially that, um, yeah, you know, people saying uh, along the lines of, you know, I've got the product, I've got the product, you must want it. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the traditional way of uh, launching a product, you know, which has changed uh, a lot over the last sort of, you know, 10 years with the, you know, with, uh, it's become more human centered in our design. But, you know, I've got this idea, you have to like it because it's, it's mine. And I guess that's uh, that part of what it goes back to that brain's trust that you know ed has is you know being open and listening and you know not pushing your uh pushing your idea on top of people but actually being open to uh, uh you know what everyone else can contribute in that in that group yes yeah and and i think this is the behavior shift as we move away from industrial age practices in the office and we get into a, a knowledge age and information age, it, this empathy for your customer, for your user is really at the heart of the, the success. Now, I'm going to set up this next clip because this conversation about product creation leads perfectly into this, this next idea. Obviously, everybody knows that Steve Jobs not only ran Apple, but he actually ran Pixar for a while. And Ed Catmull spent uh, so much time with Steve and knows Steve over the good and the bad. 
And what was really powerful about the book, but also Ed's view of Steve Jobs, is it's very contrarian to how most people perceive how Steve behaved in the office. So why don't we listen now, and then we're going to discuss the real transformation of Steve Jobs and how he really achieved his greatness. So here's Ed Catmull talking about working with Steve Jobs. But in fact, what happened was over time, Steve went through three major failures. He's basically thrown out of Apple. Um, Pixar uh, didn't make it. It, you know, it's hanging by its thread, but basically it failed. And next basically failed. Um, so in that, because he's really smart, he realized that he had, um, uh, he was not behaving appropriately, he wasn't acting right, and he was doing things to people which weren't good for them. So because he's smart, he changed his behavior. And we saw him become more empathetic. He was very aware of his impact on people. Um, he thought about the cultural interactions. We saw this change. But here's the critical point. When he made that change, then after he made that change, everybody that was with him stayed with him for the rest of his life. Very different to how everybody sees him. And you, when you think of Steve Jobs, you think of iPhone success. But what got him there was the transformation that Ed just talked about. And I think that this is the move from the draconian dictator, I'm the ultimate tastemaker behavior, we should call that the old Steve, and a move towards the new Steve, which was being much more empathetic, listening, and really looking at the world from other people's points of view rather than just his own. And I find that, I mean, you, you know, when you think about this, Chad, this is not a story you hear about Steve Jobs very much. I mean, you usually just hear about him berating people in the lift and firing them. Yeah, I actually skipped to the end of the book when I heard this story in, in the interview and prepping for this show. The, the epilogue is a truly beautiful story and how Ed had this unique relationship with Steve because Ed came into the picture kind of in the middle of Next and at the founding of Pixar, which was a very pivotal moment for Steve, kind of, I guess, like roughly halfway, maybe a little before halfway, you know, through his career, you know, through his working career at Apple. And it was just very astute, I feel like, of Ed to see Steve in that way, in, in a way that other people maybe didn't. And it, it, it I mean, I encourage everyone to pick up Creativity Inc. for everything that Ed has to say. But this particular story about Steve Jobs, I felt was really interesting. Having read the Walter Isaacson biography, it was a very, right, very right. refreshing perspective. Simon, have you seen many people who are the old school, very directive leader in a business, very dictatorial almost? Have you seen many of them make such a transformation? Oh, look, I'm, I'm not sure if I have. Um, I guess often by the time, you know, someone, the, you know, say they're in that leadership position, they've been, they've made an organization 30 years, they may, um, you know, some of their habits uh, stay around for a long time. But I 
think uh, there's very much an awareness going on that, um, especially with, uh, I guess, these things around listen, empathy and seeing, there's definitely awareness and around, you know, how uh, the old way of doing things isn't going to help uh, uh, organisations uh, thrive uh, as they move forward because, you know, times are just so different, in the, you know, as you guys know, because you, you deal with this every day, the pace of change is so great and uh, that ability to sort of, you know, listen and have empathy and, and uh, you know, be that brains trust uh, group and, you know, be, be okay with the ambiguity and that, uh, you know, things not being the way they uh, used to be and changing all the time. I see a shift there, absolutely, but I can I put it down to one particular leader I've seen transform? I wouldn't think so. Yeah, um, that's been largely my experience, that by the time someone is in a senior position, the ability to transform from talking and pitching to listening and, 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 and seeing is, is a bit too much. And I think, th- I think there's in part a, a generational thing there, but I think it also speaks to the, the, um, capability of Steve, the fact that he can make that transformation and that he can keep people like Ed Catmull close to him. And we'll hear a little bit more about that later in the show. Now, before we talk about the book, I think we should just recap a little bit on some of the themes. I think the big one for me is that in the end of the day, it's not about getting in new people. It's about putting in new practices and putting in the right environment for those people to find their creative voice. And I think that was the big story we heard in the, in the first uh, half of the show. Um, and in the second half of the show, we're going to get into some of the other beliefs in about how Ed has has unlocked all this creativity, how he thought about himself relative to his peers, the price we pay in success. So we've got a lot of good things coming down the pipe here in, in the show. But I wanted to to ask both of you about any stories or anecdotes that were in the book that really, really spoke to you. I know, Simon, you dutifully, in prepping for the show, dug into the book. Uh, from what you've read, were there any stories that really captured your imagination and, and got you thinking about new ways to practice creativity? I, I guess one of the, one of the stories which um, jumped out was that after, you know, 20 years of trying to make a, an animation that was his aim, and I think it then took him 30 years, if I've if I got that right, to when uh, Toy Story came out, he he'd, he'd achieved everything that he um, you know originally set out to do, but he felt quite flat, and he realised that you know there was more to it than you know just making movies, and that was when his uh, I guess his shift came around to you know his new purpose was around people, and so that shift from um, I guess you know being a, an out and out animator or a, a, a computer engineer or working in computer science was, was where it got him to where he was. But that shift to being um, people, because people are the are the, are the heart and soul of uh, of Pixar, and he recognised that it wasn't. I guess it wasn't process, and it wasn't um, technology, but it, it was people. So yeah. I guess that reinforced something already knew. But just his passion then was actually how his company thrived is he's let his people thrive. Well, what's interesting, he almost went on his own transformation from the engineer to the creative people person, like, like Steve Jobs went on his own uh, transformation as well. Maybe that's what, what brought them together. Um, now, the book is called Creativity Inc., 
overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration. Chad, you've read a lot of books for the show. How how did the writing stack up and where does this sit for you in terms of the quality of the read and the writing? Where where does it where does it stand on the ladder? Oh, okay, I, I see where you're taking this. Um, it's interesting. All of the books have been very different. So the book that I read about FedEx was written by an insider um, very close to Fred Smith, the founder. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that he didn't have a ghostwriter. So it's, it's kind of a very simple read, but you get a lot of inside information. The Bill Belichick book was written, you know, by like a sport, a a very good, well-known, uh, very tenured writer. Great. Exactly. And it has a very, yeah, it has not like a formal feel, but like you're reading kind of a pretty meaty book. And in this one, because it's a collaboration with Amy Wallace, um, who I think has like written for GQ and many other periodicals, feels very much kind of like a collaboration where I'm sure that that she and Ed, you know, spent many hours in interviews. And so this book to me feels like the best of a hundred plus hours of interviews with Ed kind of distilled into the best moments. You know, there's kind of chapters built around talking about the brain trust and then kind of at the beginning or ends of all these chapters, it kind of forwards the story of Ed and Pixar, you know, going from, you know, a, a physics student at the University of Utah and then getting on the internet with, you know, the original ARPANET back in the seventies and his 20 year journey from, hey, I, I want to make an animated feature to actually having and building the technology and the hardware to do that. And then, of course, founding and building Pixar with, with Steve Jobs and John Lasseter. Yeah. I, I thought it was a, an interesting addition to the mix. Well, also, it's kind of appropriate that he would collaborate with another writer. If you look at how he practices in the office, it, he's sort of uh, drinking, uh, not drinking his own Kool-Aid, but he's... he's uh, He's doing what he preaches, and I think that's quite powerful in this format, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's written in such a way, too, that I feel like you can pick it up and not have to read it sequentially, although you'll kind of miss the the grand story arc of, of his career in Pixar. But you could just dive into a chapter that interests you. I mean, the ones that really jump out to me is this kind of epilogue about Steve Jobs and also the one around the, the brain trust. But uh, one of my favorite stories was just how they had to reboot Ratatouille, the film Ratatouille, like from the beginning. Yes. yeah. And they brought in Brad Bird, who was the director of The Incredibles, which was, you know, at that time, like the most successful Pixar movie. And they were like three years into the project when they said, you know what, it's not working. And they just kind of went back to, I think, they said that, you know, he kept one line from the film <laughs> and, and then, you know, in, in the old version, the rats, you know, didn't stand or they stood on two feet. And then the new one, uh, Remy only stood, you know, when he was cooking, it's just really fascinating that they could put, you know, probably a couple hundred people in three years of time into a project and still have the the cookies. <laughs> yeah, like the confidence yes. to just be like, nope. Nope, no, nope, we don't that we was don't. that was a that was a try. Yeah. That was a fail, you know, that was a failure. We're gonna learn from it and we're gonna try it again. Yeah. And th- you know, and then they create Ratatouille, which 
I don't know exactly how much, but probably made over 150 or $200 million for them. I think there's just so many stories like that, 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 uh, make the book very worthwhile for, for anyone curious about either Pixar and the films that they make, or just how to bring out the creative process in a very diverse group of, of people. Yeah. And I, I would add for everyone that it's not just for movie companies. I think these practices apply well beyond that of Hollywood. And um, the book is Creativity Inc. We'll have it on the, the site with the show notes. You can find those at moonshots.io. So now we're going to jump into the second part of the show. We've got a ton of good stuff. We're going to rip through these clips and we're going to take a different tangent now. We're going to get into some of the things that upon reflection of you know, making it safe, uh, having enough dumb ideas, having the brain trust, removing all those barriers. There were some really big lessons that that came to Ed. And uh, here is the first one where Ed is talking about the trouble that we start to have when we're successful. And um, I believe that in our success that we continue to make failures. And a lot of that is just is to come from introspection. What didn't work? Um, personally, I don't believe we uh, attribute to other people or to luck its role in making what, us what we are. And if you think about the luck or the good things that happened or the, even the phenomenal luck of getting the right people there, and you appreciate that, then you are opening yourself up but you need to recognize that and, uh, and then address the danger. And, and it is a danger. I, you know, I look at Disney right now who just came out of the failure and I say, well, okay, after you have enough successes, then at some point it begins to mess with their head. And that's, for me, that's what cultural succession is, to figure out how to keep yourself from drawing that wrong conclusion. This parallel was so fascinating to the connection to Bill Belichick. Yes. And how he subsumes you know, the success and doesn't want it to go to their head. I was just like, wow, this is Bill Belichick talking through Ed Catmull. I know. It's like, get those trophies out of here. Yeah. I think, uh, just how, um, again, people that you would think are not very humble actually seem, you know, through everything I've read and heard from Ed to be quite humble. And that unexpectedly is actually probably what helps them be successful. And you, and you can turn and look at the Patriots and the way Bill Belichick has built that team. And that's kind of another proof point that uh, not letting that go to your head can actually be much better in creating a cohesive team that works really well and, and, and is very consistent. Right. And um, I would say that you see a lot of companies release one or two good products and then they go away. You see uh, great sports teams have one maybe two good seasons. But it's so rare to see a company come out with like 15, 16 hits in a row, win five Super Bowls under the same coach and quarterback. This is where you see, okay, here is what greatness looks like. That's why, you know, I love breaking breaking that down to understand. And I would actually offer uh, to you, uh, Simon, that we've, we've not only learned that being a learner for life seems to be a characteristic of all great innovators but i'm i'm seeing a lot of this theme of humility or going a step further emotional maturity to to care and and nurture others around them 
Do you see a lot of that in successful leaders that you work with? Do you see this sort of humility and putting others before themselves? Yeah, look, I, I, I think I, I think I do. And, um, you know, I, I recently, uh, put out a, a, a little illustration after I heard a, um, speaker, you know, say this quote and said, you're, you're not a leader until you develop another leader who can develop another leader. And like I put it out on, um, LinkedIn and it's had a really big sort of conversation around it. So I think that, that piece around that sort of, you know, humility and developing talent and, you know, leadership who can, you know, take other people forwards a, a really important thing just by the sort of the feedback I've, I've had on it. So, uh, finding, you know, finding leaders who are, are humble and, you know, help grow people just from what I've, you know, read and seen from this comment, they, they do exist everywhere. And when it happens, it, it's a really powerful, it's a really powerful thing. And we saw this with Jack Ma at Alibaba too, Mike, where he specifically said that he only wanted to hire people who he thought could be their boss in just a few years. Yeah, that that's a big theme, this idea that People that make you a little bit uncomfortable because they're so good, you're like, oh man, I'm going to have to raise my game a little bit to 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 keep up with with these guys. And I think if you're feeling safe, that's an exciting challenge. I think if you're not in a safe environment, I think that becomes comes a threat. And that's the sort of underlying condition that Ed creates with people. And I think it's a great uh, uh, lead-in to our next clip, which is all about how we see ourselves in relationship to others. So, Chad, do you want to set up this clip? I'll just let Ed speak for himself. Here he is talking about just that. Trying to figure out how much of it was me versus all these other people that I knew would contribute it. Now, it's a natural question to ask, But I realized at the end of the year that needing to answer it was very bad. Its basic premise was one of separating me from the contributions of others. Now, I know several people who've been successful, and they ask that question, although they will never admit it. Um, But they need to find the answer. It took them down the wrong path. They separated them out from those people to see what they could do on their own, which is a wrong and selfish path. And since the whole should be greater than the sum of the parts, breaking it into parts has no value. Love it. Yeah, so Ed, he he asks himself the question, how much of this failure or this success was me? And this is kind of Ed, the manager, you know, thinking. And I love how he just kind of blows that question up. And he's like, why do I need to separate myself from the whole and give myself undue or, you know, unearned success or, 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 or part of the failure? Yeah. And I think this ties into a theme that we saw with Oprah Winfrey, which is she was like, everyone's looking for validation. Um, the, the interesting intersection here, though, is people look to validate themselves rather than what they were part of and what they contributed to help others prosper. And this really, really speaks to me because the analogy that I see here is back to uh, Bill Belichick with great sporting teams. You You can just tell a great sporting team 
when they are unselfish, when they are hardworking, when they their whole body language is about helping and encouraging others. And this seems to me to be a cultural shift that many companies struggle with. And uh, it reminds me of working in the advertising industry, how when we would win an award, you would put in some sort of award entry and you would have to put the names of the people that contributed and the fuss that people made about whose name got on the list. And when you think about it, just because a core team worked on a uh, an advertising campaign doesn't mean that everybody else didn't contribute. You could even argue that they contributed by taking care of all the other things so these people could hit a home run. And I, I really like the idea of with things like that, that the whole company takes the credit rather than than individuals. And I think that act of selflessness speaks to, you know, great teams that really do add up to to the sum of their parts. So I, I have a trick question here for you, Simon. Outside of your work, where else do you see this idea of not being selfish, but uh, really contributing to others and allowing the sum to be greater than the individual parts? Look, I'd I'd see that as a lot in the um, in the arts, and so if you're putting on a you know a production or you bring something together, or a, I've got a lot of um, a lot of people who I'm lucky enough to work with have very successful careers in the arts, and I'm, they're involved in a lot of great collaborative uh, projects with the community or with people who are you know new to Australia or they're you know creating something that might involve thirty or forty people, and you know the the focus they have is uh, all ego aside and the the focus is only on the end product and so i see that where you know they focus on the problem and the, the solutions and that you know everyone aligning together to build something much bigger than they could by themselves so i guess i, I see that in a lot of my my colleagues um who are, as i said you know are all artists so um and the projects they're doing yeah the arts is notorious for that archetypal director with the scarf and the and the uh the creative turtleneck kind of look, and it's all down to that one person. But it's it's never that simple, and and I think that's the inspiring thing that Ed continues to do is make a case for the, for the team rather than the individuals, which you feel like Chad just drips through the halls of Pixar, and he managed to get it to happen in in Disney uh, as as well. It's that's the most remarkable thing, right? Yeah, this is where I think his interesting perspective is useful for people outside of the entertainment industry or, or the arts. All of my favorite ex- work experiences have been on the extremely collaborative, you know, team over self environments. It's when we got the most things done. It's when, you know, we're all emotionally invested in what we were doing and proud of what we had made because filmmaking is such an enormous collaborative, I think the most collaborative work or some of the most collaborative work that teams can do for Ed to kind of sit above it and see, oh, okay, this is how this system can function the best. Now, how can I take this learning and share it to others so that it can work in a different context? And so this idea of not putting management above others and not trying to attribute your team or company's success or failures on yourself is kind of a like no-brainer 
are taken for granted in the creative industries, but I feel like it's a very uh, needed message in, in other areas in industries. Right. And, and this next clip, he goes into talking about this feeling of safety and what it can, can unlock within the organization. So here's our second last clip from Ed about making it safe. So our job is to make it safe. And the world is going to change whether or not we want to. So what is our response? New problems will continually arise, each of which creates new stresses. Our creativity is expressed in how we respond. Thank you. I mean, that's the rah-rah. That's his Braveheart speech right there. Like, creativity is the tool to combat change, which is really interesting because Fred Smith from FedEx totally was up for, for change. And, and, and this is a, another thing, people embracing challenge. So as, as I'm talking about this, I've got like people, all of these gurus that we have decoded and deconstructed, they're all learners. They're all humble. And they love a challenge they, that seems to be through doing what they're passionate about. Nothing is too big a mountain to conquer. I mean, when you hear lifelong learner, be humble, embrace the challenge, what, what comes to your mind, Simon? I mean, what would you add to that if you were talking to your younger self about achieving, you know, creative greatness? What would you add to a lifelong learner? Being humble and embracing the challenge, Simon. What would you What would you throw in there? Is there any others that you think really define success? Well, I, I guess in a creative space, embrace the challenge and understand that the, the challenge is the randomness of it all, and you, you you're never sure how everything is going to pan out. But be open to all that that randomness that will happen in the challenge. So the challenge is, uh, you know, embracing that randomness, and you know, the challenge is the fun part. And uh, you know, Ed talks around, uh, you know, don't shy away from uh, risk. You know, the risk is the, the fun part. They want to do risky things. So embrace challenges and embrace risk. And, you know, that's where, that's where creativity can thrive. But the, the, the attitude and the mindset you take into that and being okay with that. Uh, as, you know, we're making a film, we're, we're not sure where this will end up because at the moment we don't, we don't have anything, you know, be open to the, those wonderful things that, you know, life and people and teams will, will throw up to you. Yeah, I, I, think, I think not fearing the unknown, uh, which seems to be a huge characteristic of large teams. They hate the unknown. They hate it when they, they can't manage all the risk out. But learning to be comfortable with the, the, the grayness, that seems to be, to be really... Like a like a key playbook, those, those those beliefs. Chad, thinking about creativity as the the answer to change in life. How did this make you feel when when you heard this? And you think about you're practicing storytelling and filmmaking, creative every single day. How is this sort of your your rally cry? I mean, did this really speak to you? Yeah, it, it goes along with something else Ed said, where they always start with this sucky idea. He's like, you know, an idea is pitched and, or, you know, we see the storyboards strung together and it sucks. And being okay with that 
and knowing that by coming together and doing the work, it's going to get better. And kind of the more chances, the more different influences and different people and perspectives and feedback and more iterations you go through, the better it becomes. And to not treat it as precious ever. I think that's that's been kind of common amongst most of the people we've profiled too, is they're all extremely driven and persistent, but they're not so tied to a singular idea that like this must work or this must be it. You know, like Oprah started as like a news correspondent on the local news, but she's like, oh, what if I use TV in a slightly different way? And then all of a sudden she used it as a platform for herself and her message and became who she was. Or Fred Smith, who's like, well, you know what? My family's been in in the uh, in the airport and airplane service industry for a long time, but like, what if I took these smaller planes and loaded them up with packages? There's no, you know, direct, you know, freight service. I just think the fact that Ed and the Pixar creative team is just not satisfied with those initial ideas, because I'm sure that all of us here on this call, included, have kind of just shipped a very basic. Uh, mm-hmm half-hearted kind of thing and said, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Like, that's it. We're done. But it's never satisfying. Yeah. Right? So true. So true. And you kind of know, it's almost like when you're a kid and you you stole a cookie out of the kitchen before dinner and you're like, I know I just did something really bad. It's really, for me, the, the, the ability to listen to that feeling and, and, and to know when you have to say pause, we got to go back. We got to do it again. The Ratatouille story was classic. That, and I think if a lot more companies ship products where they had really asked those questions, we would enjoy a world with much better, much more usable, much more delightful products and services. So, this is the perfect theme to connect us to the last clip, and this is really where. Ed talks about his mission. This is where he talks about these moments where we face the fire, when we have to listen to our instincts and our intuition, and we can make choices, either good or bad ones. And let's have a listen to him talking about uh, what happens when we come to these moments. But the the overall is that the films are great and that's what you get as a result of being willing to pull uh, or or to make a really tough decision at the end. And I take a lot of pride in that. So like, okay, this is where we express our values. It's, you know, when the films come out, we love the fact that people want them, but we, or, or, or they enjoy them and we affect culture in that way. But the, the, the exciting part where the adrenaline goes is when you get there and it's like, holy crap, we've got a problem here. (laughs) And then you do the right thing. Those are the moments, right? When you're looking at it and you're like, it ain't right. Have you, you, Simon, had experiences where you're working on a project and you're looking at it and you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good? Yeah, look, I've got a a painting in my lounge room that I've been uh, looking at that I started 12 years ago. And uh, uh, I've been looking at it, trying to resolve it for uh, 12 years and I keep it there and I change it and I put it back and I change it. And so in an artistic sense, I know I, uh, I, know I haven't solved that. So I'm going to keep going with it, uh, you know, till I have. 
that challenge, you know, like you put it in your living room, Simon, you know, where you have to face it. I, I love that. And, and it, it's very, um, very much in the spirit of what Ed has been talking about in these clips we've been listening to. Yeah, and it's, it's that little irk that's, that sits inside me that makes me want to uh, keep working at it. And um, But look, I also might be at the stage where one day I just do blow it up as, uh, as uh, you know, Ed and them have done on, on, on certain things. But look, I, I know there's a solution, but I'm, um, I'm, still, I'm still striving to, uh, to find it. But I also know I wouldn't, I would never exhibit it because I'm not, even though lots of people like it, I'm not, I'm, I'm very... Uh, yeah, I'm still very unhappy with how it is. And that's that's the key thing that we're learning from from Ed Catmull, that he would never put that artwork into a public collection because he knows it's not good enough. He has created an environment where people feel okay to say, you know what, it's really not quite there. And I think that's the brutal honesty that feels not threatening but it sort of focuses everyone's minds toward, okay, well, let's try some other approaches. And I think that at the heart of what we're discovering is that there is that ability to to not let ego get in the way. There's this ability to to make it safe for others. And in fact, really, his job seems to have been to make everybody wildly successful around him. And I'm, I'm sure he's not only contributed to the success of the directors of his films, but to Steve Jobs as well, because, you know, he is a big part of the late years of Steve Jobs. And that's obviously when all the, all the success was there. So I feel uh, like this concept of you're facing that moment, uh, don't, don't give in and say, ah, it'll be fine. Stand there and say, it's not right and, and I have to tackle this. And in the end, that leads to, to great products, great services, great films and ideas, great artworks. Even for, for someone like Ed, I think we can, we can expand that into things we see in all parts of, of our life. So guys, there you have it. We have done close to nine, 10 clips going into the world of Ed Catmull. I, I want to open it up now uh, for both of you guys. Let's maybe start with Simon. What closing thoughts uh, do you have on Ed Catmull and, and what are the biggest things that you're going to try and do today to, to sort of use his learnings in your practice? Well, uh, the big one which uh, stuck out, uh, stuck out for me, and also reinforced uh, what of what a, a lot of what I know is just that one around fear and creating that safe place. And I guess my constant battle is, you know, how do I the people I work with, who I would say, you know, ninety five percent of them will come into that room with a "I am not creative, Simon," and I, you know, say, well, yeah, that's not true, but oh, you haven't seen me. I really, I, I really am not creative. How, how do you, um, you, you can work with people in that room to shift it. How do you then continue to ingrain that inner culture where, um, you know, it is a safe place and the the fear of, you know, saying something dumb is gone. And I, I think that's the the biggest handbrake on, uh, you know, innovation, especially in large organisations, just that fear. So, I, you know, I would encourage every, um, every leader, every team leader, every, uh, you know, person in a team, you know, create a space where it's, you know, it's okay that, you know, to, to share your ideas no matter how half-baked they are. 
And the, I guess the other big one I want to, you know, continue to share with people is the end product is not the first cut. Like we, we see these movies and we think, oh, they're so talented and they're, they're so creative, but the mistakes they made on the way that they embraced yes, yes. and the messiness and the abstractness and the ripping things up and blowing, you know, blowing them up lets them create world-class products. But, you know, that's not linear. And it's not a, a singular process, so it's, it's it's embracing that you know ambiguity and understanding behind all that uh, those fantastic products. There's a whole you know there's a whole world of creativity, the whole world of randomness, but most uh, importantly, there's you know empowered people who are happy to you know to to explore and share and give honest feedback and you know take risks. Yeah, I totally agree, and and I I like the idea of that the the cut that we see, the film that we see, has had about a million edits before we've seen it, and not just to think it just drops from the from from the sky. Uh, that that really spoke to me too. How about you, Chad? What what stood out from the stories and the thinking of Ed Catmull for you? I felt like the idea of the brain trust kind of encapsulated a lot of of Ed and Pixar's philosophy of creating the right environment kind of emotionally and holding a container as well as putting the right people into the mix as well. Uh He's very adamant about how from the very beginning of Pixar, they always recruited people for themselves and not for their ideas that you give great ideas to mediocre people and they will absolutely ruin them. But you give mediocre ideas to great people and they can turn them into great ideas or throw them out because they're bad ideas and come up with better ideas themselves. And I feel like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that is maybe something that I can, I kind of take for granted in the creative field, um, because that is kind of my de facto way of, of working. But I'm, I'm curious to even more kind of formalize this process of, bringing the right group of people around a specific project or, uh, or product or service and having that real candor, almost like to borrow a phrase um, from a, a guy that I've read and, and respect, Blair Enns, he, he calls it kind ruthlessness that's, that's necessary <laughs> like you that. know, to, to bring out the best uh, work. Kind ruthlessness. I, I, I like this idea of being able to speak to the work and that nobody is worried about taking it personally. And I too loved the the brain trust as a practice. Like one thing that I can formalize today is the brain's trust. I, I really, much like both of you, I work a lot with ideas um, particularly they're very ambiguous at the start before they get built and designed into products and all that kind of good stuff. But, you know, the thing is that we kind of informally have something like a brain's trust. But what I realize is that the way we're reviewing is probably a little bit too top down and that we should build a practice that is more equalizing so that everyone can contribute to the idea and that, that it's a safe, it's a safe place to do it. And, I think that's the the biggest uh, takeaway uh, for for me too. So uh, there you have it, everyone. We've we've done um, a good hour and twenty minutes, if not more, going through the universe of Ed Catmull. There were plenty plenty of clips that that didn't make uh, the list, 
Um, you can go to our show notes at moonshots.io. You'll find a link uh, to all of the long-form interviews, a link to the book, and any of the other good things uh, that we've we've mentioned. And uh, we really do encourage you not only to check out the show notes. What are our other calls to action, Chad? What do we want folks to be doing? Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to Juiced. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, a listener uh, that provided some some great feedback. I think his vote for top episode was our very first episode on Elon Musk. Um, for any new listeners to the show, I'd highly encourage you to uh, to go back through our back back catalog, if you will. Um, but I. L- Honestly, love getting feedback and emails from, from all of you listeners. And just wanted to say, you know, thank you for continuing this zigzag journey through, uh, innovation that, that Mike and I have forged, th- you know, through the likes of Oprah to, to China and, and Jack Ma and Alibaba to Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, now to Ed Catmull. I, um, yeah, it's been a really, uh, fun experience and, um, you know, just want to hear who uh, you think the listener should be profiled here on the show. Mike and I would be absolutely up for uh, for a listener suggestion. So the first time we get a a good suggestion, we'll uh, we'll 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 record a show. Yeah, and full credit to whoever gives it uh, to us. I want to kick it back to Simon and and ask. Obviously, when we invited you on the show, you had the chance to listen to a couple of shows. Uh, which one was your favorite and, and why? All right, that's a good uh, question. Look, I um, let me see. I probably like the last one that you did around uh, Bill uh, Bayachuk or Bayachuk, if I've got that uh, right. And I just really like the um, the deep dive that you did around uh, the learnings for him. And yeah, at someone I had heard of the name, but you know, being a, an Australian, when we don't follow NFL that much, or myself personally, so just to get an insight into his um, his philosophy and just his lack of ego as well as a, as a leader, I think that was just a really great insight to his you know openness and honesty. So, you know, that's probably um, closest in my mind, but also really enjoyed the the Fred Smith one. Just his passion was uh, unbelievable to be you know almost 50 years in that company and and still is excited i think there's a it's a real note to self that when your passion is you know maybe wavering it's time to you know stop you know refresh or you know actually think you know am i the right person to be doing what i'm doing but that that passion piece and i think um you know ed catmull's got that you know that passion in him as well so that's sort of a long answer to your question but they're, they're some of the the things which I've uh, I've really liked listening to. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That that that's great feedback. And uh, before we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about how people can find you? And please tell us a bit more about this book that is coming. Okay, I can be found uh, by my website simonbanks.com.au. Uh, with regards to the socials, uh, on LinkedIn, um, on Instagram at Simon Banks. C-R-E-A number eight um, and same handle on Twitter. Look, I'm, uh, I'm pretty good on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram. I get a little bit loose uh, on the rest, sort of <laughs> uh, being engaged as, as I should. But, you know, I've, I've picked my, my top ones. And look, just a little bit about the, the book. Um, 
I just wanted to make this innovation stuff a little bit more simple because I think people are just so overawed by this this whole innovation piece. Like we know it's important, but not quite sure where to start. Um, so, yeah, part of that was just showing that, you know, it, it's, act it's actually really normal to innovate and create. And we've been doing it since day dot. Mm. I want to put the fun back into it all because it feels really good mm. to, uh, to create. And, you know, Chad and Mike, you're both, um, I guess, both people who, who've made things and create things. And, you know, that feels really good. There's a, there's a piece inside of us that, you know, is born to create. So I sort of consider, you know, walking, talking, breathing, creating. They're all, they're all one and the same, but we drop the creative piece. So I guess I wanted to make it a lot more fun and also show that, you know, an innovation mindset doesn't take more time, which is one of the big things that, you know, people uh, lack in uh, large corporates or we all lack. But, you know, it's, a, um, it's just a shift in how you spend your time and, you know, open your eyes. And the last thing is uh, it's all about people. The great people already exist in your organization and it's just doing exactly what um, Ed Catmull did was you know, providing the, the right environment for those people to thrive and you know, large organizations are sitting on an absolute goldmine with their talent because the ideas are already there, it's just letting them thrive. So you know, I probably rambled again <laughs> a, a little bit at the end but um, that, I guess that's a bit of an overview about the book and yeah, hopefully it'll be a fun read. Okay, so give us the name and where, uh, when can we expect to get it into our hot little hands? Because I had the, the great fortune of ha having a pre-read of what I felt like was pretty much close to final copy. So give us a sense of where we can be on the lookout and the, and the name of the book. Okay, the name of the book is A Thousand Little Light Bulbs, How to Kickstart a Culture of Innovation in Your Organization. Uh, it comes back from the printers in a couple of weeks and then it will be on uh, Amazon and the usual spots uh, a couple of weeks after that. But you also have a, uh, a page up on my uh, website uh, in the next few days where you can uh, order and then be directed to uh, you know where to buy that online as well. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, well, I feel like the most important thing we want our listeners to do is to check out the show notes at moonshots.io where they can catch up not only on this episode but all of the, the episodes. And um, the, the exciting thing is looking forward in the calendar, we're going to have a special guest join us to go into uh, the deep world of some more great women entrepreneurs. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. But we've also got plenty of other opportunities. Who's, who's kind of on, um, on your radar, Chad, for, for the next episodes? I don't know. You threw out Lady Gaga the other day, and I, I don't know anything about her. So she, she's kind of intriguing to me to, to make another zag into like the music world. Yes. Yes, yes. We have Gaga, which could be great. I know we're going to do Martha Stewart as well. I have another one that I found uh, recently. What about Serena Williams? Another, th that's going back into sports. I think we have to go somewhere else. Although, although a, a oh, player, okay. not, a, yeah. not a coach. But uh, I mean, I, yeah, I yeah, love yeah, okay. Serena and everything that, that she's done. Um, okay, okay. Do you feel like, uh, and this is a question for Simon, are there any great innovators or entrepreneurs you feel like, you know, we haven't touched on that comes to mind that would be amazing for us to deconstruct? I was thinking from the art world, Simon, maybe someone like Jeff Coons. Look, uh, yeah, there are so many great people uh, from the arts and a great way to explore how they um, 
the explore, you know, how they apply process, so that mixture of process and creativity as well and how they interplay. I would like to do see you do something like uh, maybe someone like uh, Salvador Dali because mm. he was a constant, uh, constantly uh, reinvented, uh, you know, his, his work and he did, you know, stuff with architecture and sculpture and painting and accessing his subconscious and uh, just that he would wake up every day and say, you know, today I'm, I'm alive with the joy of being Salvador Dali and ex- excited about what he would create. So I think someone like that would be, a great deep dive but you know in the world of the arts there there are so many um people or maybe even someone like uh you know banksy because he doesn't have any press on him hardly at all so he might be an interesting uh deep dive as well oh yeah banksy I like yeah that yeah, idea. yeah that oh banksy that's going on this well uh there you've got it we've got a little bit of collaboration we had a little bit of a uh bit of a brain trust right there and and simon has brought us the goods well I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. It's just great to see how many people are listening on iTunes and SoundCloud. We're just so excited about producing this together. Thank you to you, Simon, for for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. Uh, We'll be sure to put a link out to all of the listeners for your new book and We wish you the very best. Uh, But tell us, Simon, what's the rest of your creative day hold for you? What's what's next after the show? First thing, I'm going to have some breakfast. (laughs) And then I'm going to go for a swim down at the beach. And look, I've actually got a couple of uh, illustrations to finish off uh, this afternoon. Um, And that'll pretty much uh, round out the day. Now, that sounds like a good day. I don't know, Chad, if you can even beat that. What's, What's the rest of your day looking like? Oh, I'm going to have a nice glass of uh, local Michigan hard cider here and uh, prepare for my, my shoot tomorrow, you know, charge the batteries and and prep all the gear. Yeah, the good old pre-production. Well, I'm, I'm going to continue drinking green pure green tea with a dash of honey to rid me of this cold. And uh, I'm looking to enjoy some of Sydney's great uh, spring sunshine. So uh, once again, both Chad and Simon, thank you ever so much. Uh, That's it from me wrapping up. And we'll see you on moonshots.io.